Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. If you're anything like me, uh, you struggle with certain, certain sins, you struggle with certain behaviors, you struggle with certain thoughts, certain actions. You struggle with things that don't look like Christ. You're a professing Christian. You talk about Christ at work. You talk about Christ at home. You talk about Christ among your friends. And yet you still struggle to live that life that he's called us to. You struggle with sin, just like me. It seems like we have, especially in a place like Calvary Chapel, South London, we've been blessed with uh, a lot of speakers, a lot of people who, who know the Bible, who have the ability to explain the text very clearly. We come across information um, on a weekly basis, maybe even on a, on, a, on a daily basis, as to what the gospel is, a reminder of what the gospel is. And sometimes it seems that there's some, there seems to be a disconnect between what you know and how you live. Um, and a theme that's been resounding in my, in, my, in my heart for the last couple of months is, uh, maybe a couple of weeks, is, is what Pastor E spoke about a few weeks ago. And he said that you have information plus application equals to transformation. So you have... We, we, we have a lot of information, and, and I was asking a friend of mine a question a few, a few months ago, and I said, do you struggle with the fact that you know so much, but you live so little? And that's where I'm at in my walk with the Lord. Um, in considering my new role, um, going into, I guess, quote-unquote, uh, full-time ministry, if you like, it's going to be a ministerial trainee at ELT, so, but there's still some responsibilities. I had to take an introspective look at my life and various areas which I'm not happy with, various areas where God is not happy with, um, areas where I, I struggle. And I hate to use myself as an example, but just based on the fact that I've been if you like meditating on, on what we're going to be speaking about for the past couple months, um, is, I probably would use myself maybe as, as an example as to um, how the Lord is changing me. Um, the truth of the gospel is that you can change. That's the truth of the gospel. God doesn't save you and say, okay, now you're saved, so now I'm going to now leave you and you can actually figure it out on your own. God has given us his word in order to actually bring about that change that we actually desire in our hearts, that change that he desires for us. And not for our own, our own glory, but for his glory and our good. Um, and there's, there's one thing that, there's a quote I came by maybe a few years ago by the German reformer called Martin Luther. And Martin Luther said this, he says, All of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. So there is that initial repentance when you become a Christian, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but it doesn't stop there. 
you're going through that process where you're being changed and transformed into the image of Christ, which we call sanctification. But that process of sanctification is also you recognizing various areas in your life, like various sins, various habits, various thoughts, various actions, and the Lord is pointing by his grace and his love and saying to you that that has to change. That has to change. This has to change. So all of life is repentance. So what he's saying in that, in that quote is basically saying that a Christian doesn't stay stagnant. Repentance is the way we progress as Christians. It's an intentional turning away from sin so that we become more like Christ. A Christian who tells you he's repenting and hasn't changed needs to go back to the drawing board, go back, go back to the beginning of what the gospel is. What the gospel demands of every Christian's life is change. We would never be perfect on this side of eternity, that's granted. We all know that. But we are moving towards perfection by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I've been looking at repentance as it relates to my life, and I've been thinking, what does repentance mean? It's so easy to jump to God's grace when you think about, when you think about oh, I've committed a sin, now I'm going to now lean on God's grace. Um, I'm not sure if that's thorough repentance. And I, I, heard, I heard someone say this week that we think we are repenting, but we actually aren't because of the fact that there's no change. It's like you saying, you have to now go to class to take breathing lessons. You don't go to class and take breathing lessons because you already know how to breathe. And a lot of us assume that we know how to repent, so we don't really think too much about the word repentance and what that means. And therefore, we respond to sin very wrongly. We respond to sin wrong because we don't repent well. That's what I think. And that's what I've been discovering in my life. So with that being said, turn with me in God's word to Psalm 51. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole um, chapter. I'm going to pick out various verses to actually help us to, to think about the word repentance. Okay? This is the Psalm of David. And he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret, in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot up my, all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressions your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I've read that psalm uh, a lot of times. And I guess, again, over the past few months, dealing with the sin issues that I spoke to you about, um, it's taking a different meaning in my life as it relates to repentance. And I'm hoping that I'll share that with you. But before we go on into that, into the actual psalm, uh, if you look in your Bibles or your iPads or whatever you guys are using, you see that there's a, there's a caption at the beginning of the psalm, which says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, and after he had gone into, after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we all know the story from 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 11 and 12. Um, let's just scan through real quick. Um, 2 Samuel 11. And this is a story of, of, if you like, David's decline. And also, I think Psalm 51 actually points to David's restoration, if you like, before God. Maybe not before man. You look at the end of the story between him and Bathsheba that there was uh, a lot of issues with his family after that because of the sin. The consequence of his sin had, uh, had a lot of impact on his family. But before God, he was righteous. As a matter of fact, David was called God's chosen king. And if God is sovereign, which he is, meaning he knows all things, he knew that David was going to find himself in this predicament. And David, in this predicament, was able to pen the honesty of his heart of how he repented well, of how he responded to sin. And I'm hoping that we learn a lesson from that today. So, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. Um, it starts off by saying that in the year that kings went out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him. So David was supposed to be going to war, but he, was, he didn't go. He stayed at home, according to verse 2. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and, and the woman was very beautiful. So he's supposed to be at war, He's on his couch in the afternoon. He's chilling. Walks up on the roof of his house and he sees a woman bathing. And what David did after that, he sent 
one of his servants and says, who's that woman? And if you look at verse 3, it says, the, the, the servant said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That's almost like God saying, this is someone else's woman. But you know what David did? If you like, he ignored the voice of God. He sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Drop down to verse 5. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David that I am pregnant. And look at David's remedy to this situation. Already proposing in his heart what to do in terms of trying to mask his sin, how to be deceitful, how to cover his sin. He sent a word to Joab, the captain, who was replacing where David was supposed to be, and said, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Uriah came back in, came back to the palace, left the war front, came back to the palace. If you look at verse 8, then David said to Uriah, after he had pretended like he was actually trying to find out what was going on on the battlefield. He said, he said to Uriah in verse 8, after he made him drunk and, or whatever the case may be, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and then followed him, and, and followed him a, a present from the king. But you look at Uriah, what Uriah did. I, remember, I, I read a book that the guys read at UMP. It's called Disciplines of a Godly Man. And in the book, the author said that Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. Uriah is saying, at this point, he's saying that I'm going to show my solidarity to the guys who are on the battlefield by actually not going home. The men are at war, and I'm here, and you tell him to go home to actually go lay with my wife. Uriah said, no. He slept outside the castle. Drop down to verse 11, and look at what Uriah said. It said, the ark, and, the ark in Israel and Judah are, uh, dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of, of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? It says, as you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, okay, remain here today, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed, um, and he, he, David sent him back the next day, but David gave a letter to, to Uriah to give to Joab. And the, in the letter was, Joab put Uriah in the front of the battle where it's, where, where it's, where, where it's hottest so that Uriah will be killed by the, by the swords of the Ammonites. David did, uh, uh, Joab did this, Uriah gets killed. Um, and as time went on, uh, word came back to the palace and he, his wife heard about it. She had a time of mourning. And then David took the wife that he committed adultery with to be his wife after she had, and then she gave birth to the son that, um, that was a result of that sin. In chapter 12, 
verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up and grew it up with him and with his children. He used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to, to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and her to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it. For the man who had come to him, uh, for the man who had come to him, then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. You see the hypocrisy? This happened, and David did not put the scenario together. He didn't actually even see what he had done maybe between nine months and a year previously and what the story says. And sometimes, I, 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 I look at this and I think that it might not be exactly the same scenario, but I could take myself out of the picture and say, you know what, David's right. I probably would be standing beside David and say, yes, this man deserves to die. But look at the most devastating sermon application I've ever heard in my life. So David says, you restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says, says the Lord God, the, the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. So God is now reiterating the goodness that he has shown to David previously. Because David was so blind to this, he had experienced prosperity from God. He had experienced um, peace from God, if you like, during that time in Israel. And he has forgotten God. He has forgotten the God who has been so good to give him all these privileges. And you can actually see his sin. But what's interesting here is that David repents. David repents, and the Lord forgives David. The consequences didn't leave David, but he repents and the Lord forgives him. And that's why we have Psalm 51. So turn back to Psalm 51. And remember the background contrasting it to what we have in the text here. So that's the background for this here. My first point is this. We don't repent well because we respond to sin wrong by having wrong assumptions of God. The reason why David repented is because he had, I would say he had right assumptions of God. And I think in this point we have two different categories of people. 
we have people who are very flippant about repentance. So like I said, we are so quick to jump to grace without actually thinking about the sin issue that we have. We're so quick to say, God forgives. So you have, I guess what I would call, not that I have anything against Puff Daddy, but we have the Puff Daddy mentality Christianity. You know, God knows me. Uh, Lil Wayne says, only God can judge me. And, but I guess there's, they act like there's no re- regard for God. So we have that flippant mentality where I think God will forgive me, or I know God will forgive me because that's, jo- that's God's jo- job. It is true to an extent, but what's happened here is that you've taken an attribute of God and isolated, isolated it from the rest of God's attributes. So you've picked what you want God to do, and you've created God in your own image, and taken the good part that you want from God, and you've isolated the fact that God is just, that God is holy, that God is pure, but God is also good as well. So if you look at the, the first verse, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. One thing David recognizes in this psalm is that God is merciful. Another thing that David uh, recognizes in this psalm is that God's steadfast love, that God is a God of steadfast love. So you look at the covenant that God made with the children of Israel in Exodus 34, where it says that God is a God of steadfast love. But you go towards the end, it also says that God is a jealous God. So you have that category of people who are very flippant about God's grace. You also have a second category of people. The second category of people is the uh, over-informed conscience people, people who are like Adam. Uh, well, Adam wasn't over-informed. Adam knew his sin, so he hid himself. There's some people who are hiding from God based on the fact that they think that God won't forgive them. So you have two, those two different categories, the flippant view, and you have the other guys who are afraid that God would not forgive them, or God hasn't forgiven them, or that God has beef with them. God has beef with sin, and because God has beef with sin, if you haven't repented and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he has beef with you. So the same reason Adam hid from God is the same reason why some of us hide. We hide because we have a, a sense of shame. Uh, we, we hide from God because we know we deserve to be judged. Some of us are running from God. Because we feel dirty, we feel unworthy, and we feel worthless sometimes. And that's, in a sense, the beginning of a right response. The beginning of the right response is to know that you're guilty before a holy judge. If you look at verse 4, towards the end, it says, So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. David recognizes God as judge. He recognizes his mercy. He recognizes steadfast love. In verse 2, he says, Lord, blot out my transgressions. He recognizes that God is able to do that based on the fact that he's merciful and he has steadfast love. The Bible reminds us that just as far as the east is from the west, the Lord has the ability to remove your sins that far away from you. But that can only come through repentance and faith. Through through. Real, genuine repentance. He recognizes that God can absolve him of sins. No one can. He recognizes that God is the one who creates cleanliness in the heart. Verse 10, when he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. No one else can do that. 
It's a cry of his heart. It's a cry. It's a desire that he wants. It's a desire that we should be crying when we actually go for, find ourselves in sinful conditions. Because we, have the, because we have the right view of God, we are able to actually make that prayer. If we don't have a right view of God, we could either be on both extremes. And like I said, if you isolate the characteristics of God, you isolate um, his goodness, you isolate his, 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 uh, his mercy, you, you isolate his loving kindness, you have a very, very um, uh, lopsided view of God. Because God has to judge sin. God has to judge sin because God is holy. And God is just, but he wants to forgive. My second point, we move on to the second point. My second point is, we do not repent well because we don't understand the weight of our sin. Again, you have that, flippant, that guy who has a flippant view of God, who has a, a flippant view of, of sin. And he doesn't understand the character of God, and he doesn't merge the character of God with his sin and how holy God is and how detestable his sin is before God, no matter what the sin is. He doesn't merge those two together. Because he doesn't merge the two together, he has a very misinformed view about what sin is. The Puritans used to say it like this. It says, in order for repentance to be genuine, you have to do four things. The first two are cognitive, which means you have to think about it. The first one, you have to see your sin. You have to see your sin. You have to confess your sin. You have to mourn your sin. And then you have to hate your sin. You have to see your sin. You have to confess your sin. You have to mourn your sin. And then you have to hate your sin. And I think you see all that in verse 4. So look with me in verse 4 and look at um, where it says... So that you may be, um, sorry, when he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He said he's done what is evil in God's sight. He's not, he's having a, a, a proportional view of his sin based on how God sees his sin. Not based on how he sees his sin. Not based on how the culture sees sin. Not based on how I think of sin. So my opinion is, no. Is what is God's opinion? So how do we have a right view of sin? We have to do that. It's a discipline that we have to do on a regular basis. The discipline is educating your conscience with the law of God. You don't educate your conscience with the law of God, you have your own view of sin. You have your view of sin based on popular opinion. You have your view of sin based on what most people do or what most people don't do. Oh, it's not that bad, is what I used to say. Oh, the sin, ah, it's all right. You know, like, God will forgive. And then you have a flippant view of sin. So I have a, a skewed view of what sin is. So we have to be very careful that we're not flipping with sin. Again, it all comes back to the character of God. If you don't understand that, that the holiness, what the holiness of, of God means, as a matter of fact, you look in the book of Isaiah, you look at when Isaiah said he was in the presence of God, he fell flat on his face. He was like, yo, woe am I because I'm a man of unclean lips. Your view of God would put you in a position where you actually have a right view of the way of sin. 
The second thing is this. You have to confess your sin. You have to have a... Um, what's the word? You have to have a, a, a sense of responsibility that you've sinned. I used to work as a teacher, and, and, and one of the things that people do in any kind of workplace is that they like to shift responsibility. I didn't do this because, I didn't do this because, because, or I did this because, I did this because. But no one ever says, you know what? I did it because I was wrong. I did it wrong. And it's part of our culture. Most people thrive off the shifting of responsibility. Most people get up there, the top of the ladder, by the shifting of responsibility. We don't want to do that with our sin. If you're looking at verse 4 again, when David says, Against you, you and you only have I sinned and know what is evil in your sight. He said, you and you only. The book of James tells us that uh, when we sin, you can't blame God. You can't shift the responsibility on God like Adam did. Adam said, Lord, is the woman you gave to me. Eve said it was the serpent's. Um, we can't, and even David in, in, first, in, in, first Sam, in Second Samuel chapter 11, he said it was the sword of the Ammonites that actually killed Uriah. And then um, when Nathan came to him, Nathan said, you actually killed Uriah with the sword of the Ammonite. So David takes responsibility in that sense. When he actually understands the way of his sin, he actually understands when Nathan came to him and said, you know what, you sinned and you did it. It's not a situation of I... It was because, it was because, it was because. And you can think that, like, I remember someone saying that no one does evil intentionally. It's just people always use an excuse for their evil. So, for instance, I'm, I'm at work and I, and I tell a lie because I don't want to be fired. So what, what's really happening there is that I actually value money more than I value truth. So, in other words, I've made money and I've made job and I've made status my idol at that moment in time and I've actually sidelined God. That's what I've done when I do that. But until I take responsibility for my sin, until I confess my sin and say, you know what, Lord? I did it. That's the beginning of repentance. You can't, you have to take responsibility for your sin. Like I said, the first two are cognitive. So the first two, which is um, to see your sin to confess your sin, they're all mental work. And this is what we get in Calvary Chapel, South London. We get a lot of information, we get mental work, and sometimes we don't even turn it over. You know, I mean, I guess I'm guilty of this. I, I hear the word on Sunday, and I go home. Before you know it, it's gone. I don't remember it. Because I don't have further conversations, or I don't come to community group. So that's part of my sin right now that I'm confessing. So the third thing is... You have to mourn your sin. You have to mourn your sin. Look again in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Again, we started by saying David understood the character of God. He has informed his conscience with the law of God. 
And in informing this country of the law of God, he actually sees that his sin is because of the fact that he has sinned against God's mercy. He has sinned against God's love. He has sinned against God's abundant mercy. So he understands the law of God, but he understands God more in the sense that he understands that the one I love is the one I hurt. Now this is where the morning comes in. How does this apply to us? How tangible is the cross to you? How real is the experience of the cross, something that happened 2,000 years ago? And only the Spirit can make that real to you. You can't make it real and say, you know, I'm just going to think about the cross. And, oh, okay, I thought about the cross. Oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you. No, it's not that. It's a working of the Spirit inside your heart that makes the cross real. You see that God, someone said, justice and mercy kissed at the cross. God's justice, which I deserved, and God's mercy, which I don't deserve, they met at the cross. So what God does is that he takes my sin that, I, that, that I've committed and he puts it on his son because he's angry at sin. And he gives me the righteousness of his son and gives that to me when I don't deserve it. So if I have that in mind and I know that I'm a sinner, mourning becomes inevitable. And I think the problem is um, we don't live in a very meditative culture. When I say meditation, I don't mean yoga, meditation, as in nam yo or whatever the case may be. I mean, we don't live in a culture where we actually reflect. And like I said, over the last few months, I've been reflecting a lot on, on repentance. And I'm so quick, like I said, I'm so quick to jump to, the, to God's grace. I'm so, so, so quick to, to leave the cross and say that, okay, I understand what happens at the cross, and then jump to God's grace. But I never really attach my sin to the cross as I should. So which means repentance is not complete. I don't repent well. I think I know what repentance is because I... Say God, God is gracious, which he is. But God's grace cannot be, seen, cannot be seen properly apart from you seeing the cross and the horrific thing that my sin deserved. So if I look at my sin and I look at the cross, then I can now look at God's grace. I can look at God's grace because God is merciful. But before we get to that merciful part, there has to be justice. God, God is loving. God has, uh, how does the psalm say it? The psalm says he, um, he has steadfast love, which means his love cannot be changed. He has a steadfast love. Regardless of what I do, he, st- he still will forgive, but repent for, in order for me to repent well, and in order for the gospel to take root in my heart, I have to look at the cross more intentionally so that repentance becomes genuine, so that I change, so that I don't go back to that same sin. And I think that for me, and according to what the Bible is saying, there seems to be a disconnect between how I view my sin and how I see the cross. I'm so quick to go over the cross without actually thinking about my sin properly. And what would happen when I mourn my sin. When I mourn my sin, I will hate it. I will hate my sin. My sin will be detestable to me. 
So the second point, which is we don't repent well because we don't look at how heavy and how weighty our sin is. The third point. The, th- the, 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 the third point that I have is I don't repent well because I don't realize the impact of my sin on community. I don't recognize the impact of my sin on community. So if you look at verse... Verse 13... Look at what happens after he's repented. It says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Don't forget he's actually talking about, don't forget that David came from, comes from the nation of Israel, and Israel were God's chosen people. And in order for repent, the, the, the aftermath of, of repentance is that I'm now able to be God's chosen king properly. I'm able to teach transgressors the way of God. Look at verse 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. Sacrifices was done as a community thing in the nation of Israel. Um, I remember living with um, a friend of mine a few years ago, and I professed to be a Christian. And I was doing the same things he did. As a matter of fact, he lived a, a, a better moral life than I did. Um, as a non-Christian. Um, and my witness was damaged based on the fact that I was living, I was saying one thing and living another thing without thinking about the community. And what would happen at that moment in time that I would get so depressed because of my sin or whatever the sin may be and I wouldn't come to church. I wouldn't fellowship. I wouldn't have community with people. I wouldn't be able to Talk about Jesus with people. It damages having the wrong view of sin, in a sense, had, had me in a place where I couldn't fellowship with God's people because I was so downtrodden by my sin. So it messes up your ability to have good community. In verse 18, it says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you would delight in the right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls would be offered on your altar. The aftermath of, rep- of repentance, he's now doing the sacrifices right. Now, before I, 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 I conclude, I think one thing you have to, one thing I, I would like to actually show us in this psalm is that David was God's chosen king. And in David being God's chosen king and God still being able to forgive him, the question is, for people who are Christians, you're God's chosen people. You're not perfect, but you're God's chosen people. And in you being God's chosen people, you, you, you have to live, we have to live a life that is of daily repentance. Again, back to the quote in the beginning, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance, which means there's a progress, there's a progressiveness going on. But what I was going to say about David was this. David being God's chosen king, and you look at the parallel with Christ. Christ, The the, the Jews called Christ the son of David. 
David offered sacrifices to, to God based on his imperfection. Christ offered himself as a sacrifice because of, of his perfection. And that's where we have the gospel truth. We have a gospel in that Christ was the only one who was able to offer us, who was able to offer a sacrifice that was acceptable to God, and David barely did it. Ba- David barely was a good example for his people, but God still calls him, that's my king that I chose. As a matter of fact, the Bible says of David that David was a man after God's own heart. In other words, he pursued God's heart. God convicted him, he repented. David was able to see his sin the way God saw his sin. He was able to confess his sin. He was able to mourn his sin and he was able to hate his sin. But the consequences of the sin never really left him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your grace and um, the fact that you call us repentance on a regular basis. And Father, we pray that you would help us to to calibrate our hearts with your law um, so that we can repent well, so that we can respond to sin well. Teach us about your character, Lord, even as we take time in our personal devotional time to actually spend time with you and get to know you, Lord. Help us, we pray. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that, Lord, you would teach him. You will show them that you are the way, the truth, and the life. You will show them that you desire to have a relationship with them. You will show them that they need you, Lord. So I pray that you will convict hearts and change minds, Lord. For your son's sake we pray. Amen. find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.